The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Hi, this is Jim. And this is Bax. Check out our podcast, The Step Over, Liberty Ballers Podcast Network, for all of your Sixers needs. Player analysis, game breakdowns, who would look coolest in a headband, and more. Subscribe to Liberty Ballers podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and check out The Step Over, a podcast about Sixers basketball. Mostly. Michael Kist, Benjamin Solak. It's the Kist and Solak Show, presented by SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. You are flying high on the Kissed and Solak Show, episode 36, brought to you by the fine folks of SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. As always, I am your host, Michael Kist. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist NFL. It's K I S T. As always, joined by the best dog co host in the game, Mr. Eight Year Streak Without a Bad Day, Benjamin Solak. Follow him on Twitter at Benjamin Solak. That's S O L A K. Ben, are you doing better than Kyle Oletta right now? Mike, I am. Always having a good day, and Kyle Laletta is probably having a bad day. So I think uh, I like uh, what is yes. That is going to be my answer. I definitely am. <laughs> well, and just to clarify what I'm talking about, Laletta, if you've been living under a rock, he was recently, uh, what was it, arrested for nearly hitting a cop, going the wrong way twice in traffic in two consecutive days, and on the second day, nearly hit an officer who was who was just standing there. So things are looking fantastic in New York, as always. Uh, but Ben, I'm not sure if you're doing better than Kyle Laletta because you have a correction and omission to make. Okay, I have like <laughs> like 65 percent of a correction and omission. It was it was pointed out to me that Philadelphia. I said you know Philadelphia should have waited to sign Nelson Aguilar to the fifth year option, and it was pointed out to me that Philadelphia could not have waited much longer than they did. The fifth year option deadline passed uh, in May, and they signed him to it in April. Yes, but then just don't sign him to the fifth year option. I, th- I thought they would have the ability to sign it this year. They don't. But still, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. But still, they're clearly at a point where they should not have signed him to the fifth-year option. So just don't take the fifth-year option, right? Like, after the season he's currently having, eight games in, right? Things let, Let's say things don't really change for Aguilar. You think Aguilar's agent would be able to negotiate a $9.5 million per year contract, Mike? I mean, that's a good question. But you're also taking taking the risk there that knowing what we know now, maybe not. But the wide receiver market is weird, dude. Listen. They would be in the ballpark, I guess. Here's here's all I'm saying. 
Obviously, hindsight is twenty twenty. Obviously, Aguilar could have came out and, and could have been just as productive as he was last year. It is worth noting that the only player the Eagles really lost was Torrey Smith, as far as a receiving option goes, right? And you would anticipate that that loss would make Aguilar's depth of target increase. Aguilar's depth of target across his first three seasons averaged at 10.6. It is currently at like 8.1 or something, right? So it, it, we've lost like over two yards, okay? So you would assume it would make it increase. It has decreased. Aguilar has been good for one season in three and a half years as an NFL player. Yeah, but watch, watch what happens now with, Gold, with Golden Tate in the building. Okay, I don't dispute that things could get better with Golden Tate in the building, but are you going to pay a guy $9.5 million to be good when there are two other good receivers on your team? Is that like... But you're also saying get better. This is this is what the Eagles are cl- clearly asking him to do from a route depth perspective. Uh, what they want him to do is work, you know, the short, the short stuff when really he's better down the field working those intermediate areas of the field. So it's not necessarily that like we get we get caught up with this idea that Aguilar is bad because of what the team is asking him to do or isn't as good because of what the team is asking him to do is different this year. So of course those numbers are going to look a lot different. I think Aguilar is still a doggone good football player that can work the intermediate of the fields and I think you're going to see that with Golden Tate. Let me ask you this. Don't look. How wh- how many yards did Aguilar receive for last year? How many, how many receiving yards did he have? Uh, let's say 780. Yeah, 768, right? Boom! Uh, what? <laughs> what was his catch percentage? I'm going to put it at 67%. 65%. Wow, I'm good. Okay. All right. Yards per reception? Uh, 11.9. 12.4. Okay. $10 million? How many touchdowns? Eight. Touchdowns. Okay. Eight touchdowns in his other three, in his other, uh, let's see. He had 28 games across his first two seasons and eight games. So in 36 games in 2015, 16, and 18, he has three receiving touchdowns. Oh, come on. Come on, Ben. You can't. No, no. Don't do it with the the two years Touchdowns are situational. Touchdowns, like touchdowns to me are not a sticky statistic. Yeah, and he was awesome in the red zone last year. I mean, he is a red zone threat. They aren't targeting him there that that much this year because they're they're really zeroing in on on Zach Ertz and uh, and Alshon Jeffrey. But he's a threat there too. He's he's a threat from twenty to twenty and inside the red zone. So you're gonna pay him nine point five million to be your third best red zone threat? Because Alshon Jeffrey and Zach Ertz, Zach Ertz is like one of the best red zone receivers in the league. How are you? How are you gonna put him up to that? St- are you are you really saying with what wide receivers are getting right now? I'm gonna pull up over the cap. I already have it. I already have it up. I already have it up. How so many? Re- nine- how many receivers? Are, how many receivers are getting paid more than 9.5 million this year? Go to 2019 because that's that's where the 9.5. That's when he in. would get it, right? There are 21 wide receivers next year that would get over 9.5 mm-hmm. mil. His range is around what Michael Crabtree and Devontae Parker are getting, not counting any new free agents that sign next year. He's better. He's better than all the dudes like right around him. Although I really you think love he's it. better than Devontae Parker. Get yeah. out of the building. You're saying that Nelson Aguilar isn't better than Oh my god, dude. If you if you're gonna throw stats. Wait a minute, at wait a minute, me, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Everybody stop, everybody stop. I thought we were saying Devontae Adams, not Devontae Parker. I, I take everything back. I take everything back. I thought it was Devontae Adams, not Devontae Parker. I, I was I was, ab- I was I was about to snap. <laughs> I thought no, because Devontae Adams Devontae Adams is like only like five more up. And so I looked at Adams while you were saying Parker, and I was Devontae, like, there's okay. no way he just tried to convince me Nelson Aguilar is better than Devontae Adams. I redact everything. I, I mean I agree. A lot of the people on on top of that list 
are are better than him. I, I would agree with that. But I think that price range for for what you're looking at in that price range from those wide receivers is completely reasonable for next year. Albert Wilson, 8.3. Marvin Jones, 8.1. Mohamed Sanu, 7.4. Michael Further Crabtree. down, Travis Benjamin, 6.5. Taylor Gabriel, 6.5. Robert Woods, 6.1. Robert Woods, I would say, should be compensated more than than that. Like, that's the one name that stands out to me. You can tell me that you like Aguilar right around that figure where Crabtree is and where Parker are and where Stills is. But here's my, and Marquise Lee at nine, right? So the two above him are Stills at 9.7, Devontae Parker at 9.3. Then it's two below him are Crabtree at 9.3 and Marquise Lee at nine. Here's my thing, Mike. I think if you were to go to Dolphins fans and Jaguars fans and say, hey, are the Kenny Stills, Devontae Parker, and Marquise Lee deals good? All of them would say no. And then Michael Crabtree with the Ravens, you would have a debate. So we're looking at, okay, you think Aguilar's worth that much? Everybody around him, I would argue, is overpaid. What's the And what's the cost of doing business? That's what the market is, Ben. You can't change the market. And I like the Albert Wilson deal. Unfortunately, he's out for the season. But he's a doggone good football player at $8.3 million. That's a solid deal. If I were a Dolphins fan, I would say I'm totally cool with. Definitely not Devontae Parker at 9.3. That's your stupid front office making bad contracts. M- Michael Crabtree at this point in his career is not worth 9.3. I would agree with that. But at the same time, what are you going to pay him? You're going to pay him like... Like Taylor Gabriel at 6.5 or Alan Hearns at 6.2? Like, what are you, what are you honestly going to pay him that would keep him in the building? You know what I'm going to pay him? I'm going to pay him less than what I would be paying Golden Tate if I could just release Aguilar this year and get a comp pick for him and keep Tate on the roster. That's what I would pay him. What do you, seeing as the, the Detroit Lions did not expect Tate to re sign with them, what would you expect the 2019 number? For Golden Tate's number to be in what range? Are we talking like Doug Baldwin range? Like, because Doug Baldwin is at like 13 mil. Would you say that's a fair range for him? Now, you granted, think- he's he's going to be 31. So there's that. Yeah, aspect no, I, there, I, I don't think Golden Tate gets double digits as an average per year. So you think he's around Kenny right. Stills? I mean, remember, Mike, when I was projecting in the Nelson Aguilar piece, when I was projecting Tate's comp pick, I'm projecting fifth round. Hmm. Right, which means he's not getting a huge contract. So something like Mohamed Sanu around like seven point four around there. Yes. Oh yeah. man, if if I could choose between Tate at seven point four and Aguilar at nine point four, and I would get a comp pick regardless, it's Tate ninety five out of ten times. Now, is this based on? Okay, let's let's say that Nelson Aguilar is producing at the same level that he that he did last year. Let's let's call it flat across the board. Yeah. So that's that's like. 12.3 yards per reception instead of currently at 9.1 yards per reception. So let's just say that production is consistent from last year to this year. Because I think he's I think he's largely the same player being asked to do something different. Would you still prefer that? Because I know... Yeah, if, no, if Nelly, if Nelly was bad for two years and then he was good in 2017 and he continued to be good in 2018, absolutely, give me the younger player who looks to have his game more settled. He's still good. He's still good. How... Mike, well, okay... I don't. Okay. I tell me. Tell me. Tell me what he's doing at a lower level this year from what he's being asked to do, other than not being as dynamic consistently after the catch. Right, but it's not even that. It's not even like what is he doing worse. It's obviously Philadelphia used him in in 2017. We believe, and we'll go back to the tape and check that he was used more as an intermediate route runner, and he was used more as as a as a guy who could get depth of target, and then you could hit him in stride and continue to run with the football. And he was used more in the red zone. Okay, let's like, that's how he was used in 2017. 
even if he still has that capacity, if Philadelphia is not going to use him that way, which they have not used him that way yet in 2018, then he's not that valuable on 9.5 million, right? He isn't, right? If he's going to play the Josh Huff role, then I don't want to play him $9.5 million. Now, if they get him back into that role and things boost back up again, okay, I still would love to see them, you know, try to make, instead of like one year at 9.5 million, give me like three years with an average of like 6 million. Like I would much prefer that, you know, give him longevity and a lower cap hit because that still feels like too much. Yeah, understand. We're talking about one year at 9.5 million. We're not talking about an average life of a new deal at 9.5 million. It's one year. Right, absolutely. So it's one year at 9.5 million in which either A, he underplays and then you've got to... Uh, except the fact that you spent $9.5 million on a guy who didn't return to value, or B, he plays to that value, and when you sit down with him at the table, guess what his starting figure is? It's $9.5 million. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know about that. Look, Howie's awesome at these contracts, so you got to think about that too. Look, we are, <laughs> for what we wanted to talk about, unless you have a closing point, No, ben. but this is, right, this is important. <laughs> the last thing I want to look at is, and, and, and over the cap is, it's loading, it's loading, the producers are pulling up over the cap very slowly. I think I might have accidentally just hit an ad too, so now we're screwed. <laughs> no, okay, we're fine. I want to see the percentage of their cap Philadelphia currently has allocated to wide receivers. Because, you know, this team has put a good amount of money now into wide receivers. Especially yeah. if Aguilar stays at 9.5 mil. Dude, I do think it's an either-or situation with Nelson Aguilar and Golden Tate. Bringing them both it back together is. with Alshon Jeffrey on the roster as well would be very difficult. The, the only avenue I can see... You know, Tate really, and this will be a good transition into the actual film on Golden Tate, which is the topic of today's, the first half of today's episode. Yeah. Tate really just didn't get, like we say, like Aguilar didn't get downfield looks. Tate really just didn't get downfield looks, right? Like Tate was used. So it's okay for Tate, but it's not cool for Nelly. We know. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's that's just not the point that's being made right now. (laughs) But I made it. With Marvin Jones and Kenny Galladay. As the two receivers uh, are the primary outside receivers for the Lions, Tate was very frequently used as a checkdown. Like, Tate was simply, listen, uh, run across the middle of the field, and if it's man, keep running, and if it's zone, stop running, and <laughs> if there's pressure, Matt Stafford's going to throw it to you, and pick up four yards, but sometimes break a tackle and pick up, like, 20. Like, this is just, yeah. like, that was his primary deployment. And so, the only way I could see Tate being retained is if Tate, recognizing that he's getting older than 30, comes to a locker room that players have been very clear that they love right and a quarterback that that a lot of players love to play for right a stellar quarterback a great offensive mind let's not forget the eagles current offensive coordinator is an ex-wide receiver coach so there's a lot of love for that in the building and i was talking with brad kelly the other day brad kelly's a big wide receiver guy about how alshon jeffries just releases and route running have drastically improved two plays really stood out for me in the jaguars tape with with jeffries route running but well that's a different matter Uh, So it's a good place for wide receivers. He's an older guy. And if Philadelphia is very successful with him and Tate starts to get more like interesting routes and more dynamic plays and he gets the ball in his hands actually downfield more and he enjoys it, then perhaps we're talking about a a situation where he's a veteran discount player. The 2019 free agent wide receiver class is not that strong. And so Tate can probably go make decent money out on the open market. But if he wants to stay in Philadelphia and he's willing to take uh, that veteran discount then that's the only way i could see all three of them staying yeah if that were to happen they absolutely would have to come to aguilar's camp and be like hey the 9.5 million is not guaranteed 
we'd like to negotiate that figure down and extend you for multiple years. Obviously, they don't have a ton of leverage there because like the threat would be and if you don't negotiate it down we cut you but if we cut you we don't get a comp pick from you so it's very hard uh so there's no not a lot of leverage there but that's the only way i could see tate and Aguilar staying that's the only avenue if that were to happen people would say oh well philadelphia's not going to get the comp pick and then they trade a third for tate well if they sign tate it's harder to right number one you're keeping tate (laughs) number two it's harder now because you put that money into tate to re-sign jordan hicks Brandon Graham and Ronald Darby. And when those guys walk, you get comp picks, right? So kind of, it's not about getting the comp pick from Tate. It's about introducing Tate to the pool of 2019 free agents will lead to more comp picks and potentially more high-priced comp picks uh, in the 2020 draft. That's right. that's kind of the best way to look at it. Tate's now a piece of the puzzle. I like the umbrella in which you put that under. Uh, anything else on Tate? Because I know you have a, a great piece on BleedingGreenNation.com where you broke down his games, his his strengths, how he was used. Was there anything specific that you saw that Detroit did that you feel mm-hmm. translates to what the Eagles might try oh, yeah. to do with him and Nelson Aguilar uh, coexisting together along with Alshon Jeffrey, of course? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it comes back to this. How many slots are there on the field mike like uh golden tate is a slot receiver how many slots are there on the field i mean you can you can typically get what like two on the field unless you're going five wide you can get two slots that's by the definition of a slot receiver he is the innermost receiver uh in the formation but what makes a slot receiver valuable what makes a rot from the slot valuable we always have to go back like what's the what's the origin here what's the reason and what makes the slot interesting is that you have a two-way go from the slot when you're an outside receiver and you're lined up three yards from the sideline you can't go outside there is no outside right you're either going downfield or inside and that lets corners play you in different ways they play you with leverage using the sideline as help from the slot you can go inside or outside that's why you like your quicker guys there because they can really maximize that inside outside versatility well nobody said you have to put your outside receivers (laughs) all the way outside so while there are only two slots one on each side of the formation you can really have four receivers Mm. with inside outside versatility at their releases and this is something philadelphia has frequently done philadelphia loves to come out and they're 12 personnel, and they'll make sure that they're running bunches, and they're running nasty splits, and they're running wings, and essentially giving three receivers, usually Aguilar, Ertz, and Goddard, the potential to both release inside and outside. Now, when your tight end is on the line, an inside release isn't as much of a threat, simply because he'll be inside releasing into linebackers, so he has to get through that to get to the other side of the field. But when we're talking about a two-man stack, Mike, so take the slot receiver, and then just put another dude behind him, well, now you've got two-way releases for both of them. Both can go inside, both can go outside, or they can they can alternate. And it's very difficult to get hands on that back receiver, the behind receiver in the stack. You can't press him because there's a body in the way. That's a great opportunity for look screens, right? Where you just throw that screen if you read high-low coverage, what we call cap coverage, where there's mm-hmm. one corner way up there and then there's one safety way back. So there's opportunity for those quick read screens and then a lot of route concepts, something Detroit used a lot of and something Philadelphia will use a lot of. Out of those situations, Detroit ran Golden Tate on multiple out-and-ups, right? And this is a a route that the Eagles have loved to use with Zach Ertz. Yeah. You take that flat defender and you pull him in by lining up in a reduced split, by lining up in the slot with your outside receiver. Golden Tate outside receiver, but in the slot, lined up close to the formation. You pull that flat defender in, and so when you run that little out route, he has to react and he has to come outside. He's not outside already waiting for it. He has to come outside, right? He has to move. And so his momentum gets going outside, and you turn things back upfield. The important thing with Golden Tate, yeah, he's not as quick as he used to be. He absolutely isn't. He is still 
very quick. He is still a swift little bugger. But because Tate's been doing this for a while, he's very, very savvy. He's got fantastic instincts. There are multiple plays. Uh, the touchdown against the Dallas Cowboys on the uh, slot comeback route, which is another route Philadelphia should integrate. You can find it on my timeline. You can find yeah. it in the post. Touchdown against Dallas. The 20-plus yard game against Miami on a little sit route like I was talking about. Just a check down. He was just a check down in the middle of the field. On both plays, Golden Tate makes a defender miss a tackle with his back to the defender. And he makes that defender miss a tackle because he's been in those situations so much that he knows how that approach is coming. He knows the timing of it. And he knows where it's weak. He knows how to how to scoot outside of it or how to duck underneath it. Just really great. Savvy is the word. He's a 30-plus receiver. Who, who isn't what he physically used to be, but he's very savvy, he's very, very tough, and he's a dog. He's a dog. He loves to break tackles. He always gets dirty yardage. He's very aggressive. He celebrates literally every play. I love him <laughs> to death. Uh, he's, he's a ton of fun to watch in that regard. So I think Golden Tate is a better tackle breaker than Nelson Aguilar. Oh, so I think Golden Tate— 100%. Uh, yeah, I think, I think Golden Tate warrants more— of the jet sweep touches yep. and the the short yards and the quick throw touches mm-hmm. because ball in his hands, he's a better yak guy than Aguilar. And I think the reason is he's a better tackle breaker. Aguilar is probably more explosive on a straight line. But Aguilar should still get those touches because he's very explosive in space. Absolutely. Certainly, Tate's going to bite into Aguilar's short yardage touches. You know, Aguilar got a jet sweep against the... Uh, uh, against the Jaguars, that should probably be Tate's. You know what yeah. I mean? Aguilar got like three bubble screens against the Colts. Those should probably be Tate's. Uh, and yeah, that's going to open up Aguilar to do more of like what he did against the Jaguars. You know, 30 plus yard completion running the deep over route on a levels concept. That's where Aguilar should be getting more looks. And that's very exciting. That's what will boost up his numbers. And Mike will be very happy and we'll pay him too much money. <laughs> yeah, but no, no I agree. I, I fully trust this coaching staff to be able to fully utilize the skill sets of two quote-unquote slot-wide receivers because of all the condensed sets that we use and tight formations. To that point, I know I've talked a lot, so I want to let you get a piece in. (laughs) Uh, I I said this earlier, and I still believe it. I'm not going to say that like Howie wasn't into the trade, like he didn't want to do it. This, to me, feels more like a Doug trade than a Howie trade. I think they were both on board. I think, like, you know, they collaborate, as, as Jeffrey Lurie told us a bajillion times. They're very collaborative, and they work together, and it's great, and it's a positive environment. And I think Howie was about it. I don't really think he needed much convincing. But to me, you know, just a general manager is going to look at Tate and say, I don't really see how Tate solves our offensive problems in terms of like, Tate's a slot guy, he's an underneath guy. Aguilar is a a slot guy, he's an underneath guy. What do we do here? To me, that was a situation where Doug probably looked at Tate, looked at tape on Tate and, you know, whether it was Grow or Gunter Brewer or Press Taylor, whoever it was, you know, and somebody in that offensive coaching staff really had the idea where they said, listen, if we do this, that, and the other thing, and we deploy him in this way, and we use these concepts that have worked really well for us, da 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 yes, Tate can solve a lot of our problems. You know, like that, that, to me, like the offensive coaching staff really had to be the driving force behind this trade. So I have full faith that they selected Tate with a clear plan in mind for him. That's kind of the overarching point there. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, they're not, they're not picking him if they don't have that plan in mind, for, for sure. They're not going after him in that case. They already know how they want to utilize him and what that means for the rest of the offense. We just need to see it play out because right now we're in that period of the unknown where a lot of it is conjecture, but I do see it playing out very well for the uh-huh. offense. Obviously a win now move, which is encouraging. You can make that move because you beat the Jaguars, go to four and four, and you have five divisional games left to go. So if this offense can get rolling and start to get some pieces back, 
then it's going to be very fun what this offense can be at its height with Golden Tate. And one of the reasons is you've got a quarterback in Carson Wentz who's playing some really doggone football and it's not showing up like it should on the scoreboard because some of those lack the the lack of weapons at the wide receiver position, the lack of a of a true two number two receiver. And I saw a lot of people talking about, you know, like we needed a deep threat. Well, you know what? Play Shelton Gibson more, see what that looks like. That's 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 a non-starter for me. You can get explosive plays in the intermediate area. Not everything needs to be a 50-yard bomb. All, all of that's good for me. I fully trust that this coaching staff is going to make the most out of Golden Tate. Ben, let's get to the All-22 film review. We're a little bit late on it this time because of the Tate news dropping and also the coaches film for the Eagles-Jaguars game was really weird. Uh, the broadcast version, we couldn't click on the plays to, to navigate through it. And then when the coaches film dropped, they dropped half a game. Luckily, that's been Bless. fixed since then. Uh, game Pass is made by the devil. So let's let's talk about this game. I actually want to talk about Schwartz first, and I want to talk about Jim Schwartz. I want Jimbo. to talk about Rasul Douglas on the defensive side. There's been a lot of talk about how Jim Schwartz dialed up some heat, and you know we talked about Schwartz shying away from the blitz, and I specifically remember saying that with the Tampa Bay game, first play of the game, he comes with some heat with a linebacker in a corner, and they got beat. And then the rest of the game, he only blitzed five times. In this game, the first blitz that they bring, third and eight, with 10 seconds left in the first quarter. He weighed a little bit for it, but the Jaguars didn't hold the ball too much in the first quarter. They're double mugging to A. Jenkins is threatening off the edge of the right tackle. He comes clean. Bortles has to step up, which leads him right into Chris Long for the cleanup sack. That, for me, uh, made me think that it gave Schwartz the confidence to continue to bring the heat. And I'll tell you, Bortles, of course, does not deal with the heat well listen uh, i love the fact that you brought up that blitz because the second i saw that blitz i thought to myself oh this is that um this is that uh pass rush lane retention thing that mike wrote about when he watched that schwartz clinic right because you've got yes the the potential mugs with the linebackers you've got jenkins is the extra guy coming off and when jenkins the extra guy wins off the edge uh chris long and i believe it was brandon graham on the interior stunt and in stunting it frees up chris long to kind of act as a quasi spy in that B gap, right? Yeah. So, all right, you, you're, you're, the scheme is to generate pressure in the D gap, but Schwartz made sure with that little twist that he's got a, a, a player who is currently disengaged, not being blocked because of the twist in that B gap. So when Bortles steps up away from the D gap pressure, Chris Long is waiting. Right. right, and I was like, "This is the Mike thing." I'm so proud of him. Uh, yeah, they did a lot of that too. But uh, so there were there were only two blitzes in the first half, and there were two sacks, and that second one that they had here, that was second quarter, second and nine with 4:41 left. The Jags are driving to the Eagles 42. They bring Malcolm Jenkins again off the edge, and they're bringing him off that that right side, where which is the the ball hand for Blake Bortles. Now he gets a one on one with Carlos Hyde, who isn't what you would call Stoughton uh, as a pass protector. And that aspect actually landed him in the doghouse with Kyle Shanahan in San Francisco last year. So Jenkins wins that and spooks Bortles and it gets cleaned up by Hicks and Bennett. So they were bringing those blitzes. Uh, yeah, Two blitzes in the first half, two sacks. Now, how did that impact his play calling in the second half? Third play of the second half, six man blitz, Jenks and Hicks to the ball hand side. Again, so going back to where does Bortles want to escape to? Where do we want him escaping? We want him escaping away from his ball hand. We want him escaping left. And that's going to come up big later in this game when, when we talk about Rasul Doug Douglas uh, specifically. So that spooks Bortles. 
Early throw, great job on that play by Rasul Douglas and his vertical relationship with the wide receiver to turn up field from off coverage, steer and widen and limit that window along the side. Yeah, I thought I thought he uh, I thought he turned early on that play. The second I saw that, I was like, man, I'm coming back with a deep comeback next drive. They didn't hit it, but I thought he had I, I thought, thought he, he had to early. turn early. <laughs> I think if like Douglas has a slower transition phase than a lot of corners yeah and it's because he's a he's a little tight in the hips and 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 i'm, I'm saying that with distinction the first post i ever wrote for bleeding green nation was after he was drafted where i said yes douglas is a little bit tight in the hips but also he's got a huge stride he's super high-waisted right like he's 6'2 but a lot of it comes from his legs yeah and so it's just going to take him longer to transition in general because he's got more distance to pull with his hips to pull those legs and move right it's just like a bigger circle he's got to draw yeah so you could solve a lot of that issue you could tamper it down if you let him play closer to line of scrimmage <laughs> let him put his hands on people i'm just saying but we're anyway gonna, go ahead. We're, yeah we're gonna talk about this because I, de- I definitely agree in off coverage there he may have turned early but i think he needed to and he was able to execute right. on that play anyway a big note on the next play and this may be a whole conversation ben they line up with five on the line and one linebacker w- with what's called the double eagle front it's called that because its originator is Earl Greasy Neal, who coached the Eagles from 1941 to 1950. Quick history lesson Fun for you. <laughs> so in that front, and this has been so you know, it's second and 10, 14.01 left in the third I'm quarter. There. Also for those playing at home. So with double eagle, you get a 303 with two wide. So no tackle in the middle, a three tech to each side of him. And what this does is it just makes the middle of your offense like garbage. And teams are doing a new form of this in college called tight, T-I-T-E. The reason being is that spread teams want to run through the B-gap. Well, 303 plugs all of that up, and then the safeties come late to fill and spill the C-gap. Now, with double eagle, the Eagles are using it here the way they use it. They don't use the safeties like that. Instead, they have two wide nines. So a zero tech, two three techs, and then you get the two nines. What they do is they... They drop both nines. So Bradham and Bennett drop. Those three interior players, the two three techs widen and they bring Hicks in the middle. That widening action gives Hicks a one-on-one with the running back to the ball hand side of Bortles. Again, you're, you're getting a theme here. Now he actually gets blocked up by the running back, but Bortles sees this coming, gets spooked, gets rid of, gets rid of it quick, a little pass and drop by Keelan Cole, go figure. I thought it was a really creative design and not a blitz per se because there's only four coming, but man, the disguise and deception that they use to get a linebacker one-on-one with a running back while only rushing four is excellent. And with the angle of those dropping ends that you get to, you're taking away slants. You're taking away curls. You're taking away crossers, which is all the quick hitting stuff that the Jaguars wanted to hit. And one last play just to finish that drive out. Ben, next play on third and 10. They bring five with Hicks, sugaring the B. He drops. Bradham comes delayed on the other side. One-on-one with the running back again. It's Panic City. Bennett starts to drag him down. Jenkins tips it. Hicks nearly picks it off. They were getting after it, and I thought that Schwartz was really creative with his blitz packages. And and where they got beat was the blitz with the classic cover zero. Maddox comes off the edge. Uh, Bradham comes up the same, uh, up the A gap on the same side. So they're overloading the ball hand side of Bortles again with four. The Jags leave in a tight end and a running back. So the blocking was seven. Bortles gets a clean pocket, throws an 11-yard touchdown to D.D. Westbrook on Jenkins, which of course was a double move. And you understand why Jenkins wants to jump that because they're bringing big time heat. And Bennett just keeps happening. 
Like these double moves, they just keep happening in these situations. And I don't know how you fix it. And I didn't think that Jenkins had to jump it. And here's why. Didi gives an inside nod. Well, the tight end is staying in to block on the other side. You got your cornerback to the nub side, which is the close mm-hmm. side. So there's no wide receiver outside of the tight end there. If he's running an inside route, you've got that corner that can close on it too. But Jenkins is playing the sticks with the blitz in mind. And he gets beat. Still, overall, what you saw after that was they were starting to gov- give some of those more classic cover zero looks, and they were they were dropping guys all over the place, and it was and it was really confusing for Bortles. I thought this was a very very good game plan by Jim Schwartz. I'm very happy you brought up this sequence. I'm very happy you brought up the D.D. Westbrook touchdown. So, and yeah, they came out with that fantastic stuff. I want to go to the second sequence in the third quarter, Mike. So the very next drive for the Jacksonville Jaguars. What you'll notice on that play that you talked with me about is that because Philadelphia's kind of got that bail look with those ends, right, that you were showing me on that second and 10, yeah. it allows Dexter McDougal, the slot corner, to kind of act like he's trapping there on the outside. So he moves into the flat, and then once he recognizes that uh, Boros is going to that quick little curl route, he closes right back inside, right? On, that, on the next drive... It's second and two. It's the play right before Rasul Douglas is going to get smoked by David Greenwich, right? He's going to give up 24 yards on a little tight end wheel route. Philadelphia is in a similar look where they've got a bunch of people. This time it's stand-up linebackers in between those B-gaps, right? They've got like four guys who are threatening in between tackle to tackle. This time they bail everybody in the middle. Fletcher Cox is dropping into coverage, right? And they they send a nine tech and they send Dexter McDougal, the slot corner, on a blitz. And if you watch Rasul Douglas, Rasul Douglas gives up. His responsibility, right? His outside receiver, who he's responsible for, he releases him free because he comes up to trap that quick little curl route that's in front of him the same way Dexter McDougal did earlier. The ball is is inaccurate. If that ball was complete, Rasul Douglas is right there to level a big hit, potentially draw that ball loose, right? On the very next play, that's the third and two, Rasul Douglas again plays tight as if he's mm. trapping against that little curl route, a little sit route, and he lets the wheel route get way behind him, right? Yep. So this was something that Philadelphia was doing where because they knew Bortles needed to get the ball out quickly on mesh and curl routes because that's what Bortles needs, they did two things all game. They, they let those outside corners trap inside and come inside on curl routes that they could see in their vision, which is daring Bortles to throw the ball down the sideline, which he doesn't like to do. And the second thing is they aligned Malcolm Jenkins. I don't even know if you call him a linebacker or a safety. Just like, you know, like like he could look straight at the center, right? Like he was on the same line as the center. Oh, eight I see. yards back. Yeah. You know what I mean? So he's he's like, he's just sitting there. Like almost like you would play a triple option team with like, a, like two middle linebackers, one behind the other. Like yeah. he's just like that back middle linebacker. You know what I mean? So he was sitting back there. They're trying to take away all those short areas in between the numbers. It was yeah. a lot of what it was. And it was a great play call in that situational third and two to hit uh, David Greenwich to get the ball into the red zone. And then you get to the D.D. Westbrook touchdown. And I hear you, and I know you don't like the cover zero blitzes. And I think that the red zone is a great opportunity to have those drop blitzes where you drop random guys into coverage. Uh, But when it's third and seven, you know, you imagine they're going touchdown or nothing, right? At the 11, you imagine they're going at least pretty deep. And so you don't know how valuable those underneath droppers would be on first and 10 of that red zone. So third and seven on the first and 10 for that series. Uh, Malcolm Jenkins and Jordan Hicks have words because there was a little crosser going from the field side to the boundary side, and Jenkins released him. Greenwich ends up opening up, could have been hit. Bortles misses the throw. Yeah. And then Jordan Hicks kind of looks at him and says, like, yo, you got to follow that guy when he comes across. Then it's third and seven. 
D.D. Westbrook gives that little inside move. <laughs> Jenkins eats it alive, probably because he's worried about it, uh, which, you know, he, he, he gave up a crosser on first and 10, and Westbrook hits him off the back. So there was a lot of gamesmanships and back-and-forth little chess moves. If you do this, I do that. Um, I think Douglas generally played as I would have expected him to play, especially in relief, which was not great, but still impactful. Like, Douglas had the uh, pass breakup on the attempted two-point conversion. Great use of length. Good job keying on a quick little sit route from D.D. Westbrook and close right down, get your hand in there. Uh, that two points ends up mattering a lot when you're in late game scenarios and a team needs to bring it within a field goal score. So Yeah, uh, D- Douglas for me had an up and down game. He did have some nice plays. He's an up and down player. Uh, yeah, that's true. And I did attribute that that third that third and two that you mentioned. I didn't like the fact he didn't – I don't feel like he needed to trap there because – Unlike the other play, he had McDougal on the inside for that, and he needs to nope. you know, get to depth. Because you can see Darby on the other side. He gets to 15 yards into the sideline with his cover two zone. That's where you can get. He 100% got suckered in. He yeah. absolutely did. It was, I, I don't mean to, to say like it was a fine play by Douglas because he did this previously, but right. I'm saying but is that's why. because Douglas had been allowed to play aggressively into that look previously, yeah. he wasn't playing with the requisite discipline. And that's why there's a conversation kind of going on right now on um on Twitter, Shield Kapati of the Athletic posted a clip of a late fourth down where Rasul Douglas <laughs> uh was, was it a was it a fourth down or a third down? It was a fourth down and one with four twenty six left in the fourth quarter. Their standard cover three. Burles ends up scrambling for for yardage uh, and picking up the fourth down. Uh that being said, you know, the kind of the argument is if he had seen this route, then you know, he would have hit it. Yeah, Rasul, uh, cover, cover three responsibilities and the outside receiver to his, or excuse me, the slot receiver to his side takes this little curl route in front of him and Rasul Douglas starts driving on it. Avante Maddox, the free safety, also drives on it, which leaves the outside receiver who's running up the boundary pretty wide open. And then it's unclear. Douglas kind of goes back to go handle it, and then Maddox goes back to go handle it. There was a miscommunication there between the two. I don't think that's a miscommunication. I'm, I'm thinking that. I'm thinking that's Douglas going, "Oh crap!" Right. And the same thing for Maddox. Yeah. Once, 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 once Douglas releases that route, they yeah. don't know who. Like Douglas goes to pick it up, and then Maddox goes to pick it up. My my point here is this: there's a conversation about you know is Douglas just not like mentally super strong? I think Douglas is super aggressive. I think Douglas just wants to close on everything that's in front of him. Kind of why people want to move him to safety, right? Which, if you leave him in press, pure man coverage, he doesn't have to worry about that. Just follow a guy. When you're running him in zone, he eats up eye candy a lot. I will say this. When Borles turns and escapes the scramble, he's at the 25-yard line. Yeah. And his receiver is with momentum heading down the field at the thirty, at the 45, then to the 40. This is not a throw we anticipate a lot of NFL quarterbacks making. Like, Bortles is a bad NFL quarterback. But I would not expect... Any quarterback currently starting in the NFC East to make this throw. I would not expect Andy Dalton to make this throw. I would not expect Joe Flacco to make this throw. I would not expect like any of the rookies to make this throw. Right? This is a bananas throw. It's a it's a Patrick Mahomes Carson Wentz throw. I mean, it's 35, to be 40 yards. running to your left as a right-handed quarterback and put a ball. What will have to end up being over 50 yards down the field. But yo, he can stop. He has room to stop. Okay, he also, he has room to stop. It's also fourth and one, and he has very clear space to go pick it up. Right. I mean, it's clear that he didn't see it, and what his right. what his thought process is just watching his headgear throughout this play. As soon as he breaks the pocket, I'm looking at the end zone angle here. What does he look at? 
He looks at his, mm-hmm. uh, he looks at Yeldon and he looks at the defender, right? And then he looks at the sticks and he goes, "Okay, I got this." And that entire rollout is spent worrying about, "Okay, I can take this to the sticks, look at him real quick, and then boom, okay, I'm at the sticks." He does not once look downfield. If he does and he's able to stop his feet, that's a touchdown. Here's what I have no clue as to what Douglas is doing. What, what do you know the distance between the hash and I, and I'm honestly asking the hash and the numbers. What is it like 10 yards? Uh I would guess it's a little bit less. Yeah, so maybe like 8 I yards. I think it's like 8 and a third. What is Douglas doing when he's got an outside guy that's in line with him vertically, right? On the numbers and he sees a a curl route go directly behind a hook zone and he's chasing something eight to nine yards inside that's running away from him. What do you? What's the decision there? What? How is that being a great? You're not making a play on that ball. You're covering grass. You're not doing anything in that situation. You got a guy right in front of you that's getting vertical. Just because you have an underneath guy under you, I think that's McDougal, if I'm not mistaken, does not mean get out of your deep zone and go to the middle of the field. Like, where are you chasing this guy? I have no idea. <laughs> at all uh i have no answer for you again like to me all right my only only thought (laughs) is that the instruction was play aggressive into stuff that you see in front of you because we a don't think ball is going to go downfield and b it's fourth and one like you know the the, if you look at all the eagles underneath defenders they all close super heavy into everything that's in front of them which leaves the intermediate crosser behind them that douglas is attracted to like open like very clearly open. You know yeah, but mean? look, look. If okay, so go a little bit further when he, when when he scrambles and he's at the twenty five and the scramble drill is drill is on and the linebackers start to react. Where's Malcolm Jenkins? He's in the middle of the field. If Bortles has to stop or tries to throw out his, that across his body, he makes a play on that ball very easily. Probably, but this this goes back to the salient point of the Eagles' defense and of Jim Schwartz as a coordinator, which is Brandon Graham collapsed the pocket up against the left tackle seventy three, whoever his Correct. name is, Josh or whatever, who's awful. Uh, and, and we, we should talk about Brandon Graham. I think Brandon Graham is, I think Brandon Graham has lost some juice, man. But anyway, Graham has collapsed the the pocket. The Jim Schwartz defense is predicated on, if I get pressure with four and I disrupt the quarterback, then I can give up stuff in my secondary and it'll be fine because they won't get there. You know what I mean? Like if this is a clean pocket for Bortles, then maybe he sits in there and he, he, he reads Maddox closed down because Maddox's initial action is to close down on the crosser. And so he looks to that deep ball, sees that the guy's toasted Douglas and he hits him. But he, the pocket's not safe. He had right. to escape the pocket. And that disruption is what takes away a quarterback's ability to make those plays within structure. So, like, this play is a is a great example of, you know, you could go to the Eagles' Super Bowl win against, like, the Patriots. You could go to their uh, win against the Vikings' NFC Championship game. And I promise you, you could find plays like this yeah. where somebody was clearly open. But because pressure disrupted the pocket, the ball wasn't able to get there. Right. So this is, like, this is how the Jim Schwartz defense works. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and look, I, I don't know how you <laughs> – I mean, how much are we burying Jim Schwartz if Bortles finds that, sets his feet, and hits it for six? Schwartz, I think we're killing. I think we're killing Douglas. As a fan base, do you think that Schwartz is getting off the hook for that happening on his watch with this fan base? I'm, I'm not saying me and you. Me and you, we tend to sit back, watch, and process things before we start yelling fire Schwartz. I'm saying as a fan base, we are murdering Jim Schwartz if he finds that. That would put it at 20, and likely put it at 25 to 24 with four minutes left with a Jaguars lead. It changes the entire landscape of the game and fits the narrative that Jim Schwartz can't close games anymore. Thanks to Russell I mean, Douglas. <laughs> I think as we've been saying, I like I, I against the Titans, I had a lot of complaints about 
Jim Schwartz and the way he put his players out in the field. But I think since we've been saying, we said it after the Panthers game. Yeah. And I think now we've said it here. A lot of this more has to do with execution than it has to do with anything else. Right. You know what I mean? Rasul Douglas has to do his job. Right. His job is that zone. Stop trying to do somebody else's job, which also fits the narrative that the players are are pressing and trying to do too much. You ready? Are you ready for this sentence I'm about to say out loud? Am I ever? Well, no, Eagle, like Eagles fans, just like batting down the hatches and keep your britches on. Jalen Mills probably doesn't give up the third and two catch to David Grant as Rasul Douglas does. He probably is in coverage on that. And uh, it's fourth and two, and uh, Jaguars kicking a field goal. There's no way they're going for it. Uh, they haven't gone for it all game. They've been kicking field goals at fourth and two from the 40 for like the entire year because it's Doug Marone. Yep. You know what I mean? All like, oh, like Jalen Mills makes a play. I mean, probably because that's a play that's more about remaining in your deep third and, and understanding route concepts. And Mills has always been nice at understanding how route concepts overlap. That's always yeah. something he's good at. And he was good at that in the Titans game. He was good at that. Uh, the Titans game was the main game where he was criticized. Um, and he was doing a great job overlapping. A lot of it was Darby's fault. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, oh, Jalen Mills. Like, you know, obviously it's very easy to say that because Mills wasn't in there, so you can't prove <laughs> me wrong. But it's the thing. It's It goes back to when when people were calling for Mills to be benched for Douglas. Like we, we said, Douglas probably makes more impact plays for you. Douglas is a, is a better playmaker on the football, but Douglas is a very high-variance player, and he's going to give up stuff. If Jalen Mills is just giving up stuff every week, then might as well put Douglas in there. He's still going to give up stuff, but he's going to at least make some plays for you. Yeah, there you go. Mills had not been giving up a terrible amount of stuff, really. Like, if, if, we, if we just call it as we see it, there are absolutely execution problems. But, you know, you're probably at a point where, with what we've seen from Douglas thus far, obviously he was put into a starting situation he didn't know he was going to be in. You know, it, it was he really is he really going to be a high-impact player, uh, a higher-impact player than Mills? I don't know yet. You know, it's tough to say. I'd love to see Douglas play a full game where he knew he was going to start and Schwartz yeah. knew how he was going to run coverage before I make the claim there. That's fair. I mean, if we want to we want to transition the conversation here a little bit. Trade deadline is now passed, so we can officially say this is the roster. What's uh what's a bigger weakness right now for Philadelphia? The current healthy cornerbacks or the current healthy offensive tackles? <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Dude, I message one makes you feel a little bad in your gizzard. I, I messaged you and I said, dude, look at Siamalu at tackle on this play. LOL. He's so, and I said this to you, and I, I'm wondering if you can confirm this. You're better with like biomechanics and all that stuff than I am, but he looks so uncomfortable in his, in his kick and, and, and with everything moving backwards as a tackle in space, just to me, looks like a mess. I would so much prefer him at guard. I feel he's, he's so uh, better utilized in that position that fits his strengths even though he's not that strong of a player. But you know but you know what I mean. If we got to dude, if we got to continue on with, and Halapuli Vite, Vite, oh my god, Vitai was bad. Vitai was bad, dude. He can't sustain a block for more than a second. His balance is awful. It's all terrible. He's so bad. He had supporters. He had supporters tell me he was good. Where are you now? Sorry, you know I had to. Like it's so here's what's so frustrating carson does some stupid stuff that i can't abide by he did i just like i can't stand it that so that that, i'll I'll, I'll tell you a little dirty secret that third and 14 throw to jordan matthews i'm not 100 positive he was throwing it to jordan matthews i told i told you that when i told uh blg that in the in the recap you did not tell me that no, yeah, I, I told BLG that. I'm like, I wasn't 100% sure that he was throwing it for Matthews. I do believe seeing it again that I'm pretty confident that he was, but it's a it, question. 
I'll put it to you this way. When he starts climbing the pocket, he's so looking well at Alshon Jeffrey. Yeah. And then he looks back to Matthews, and in my opinion, he gets his head back to Jeffrey and then starts to throw it. Yeah, that's where, I, that's where like, I come I, I'm in. Not, yeah. I'm not 100%. Yeah. Right? There's a decent <laughs> chance. I'm saying, like, I'll put it at, like, 15. Right. <laughs> that he was throwing it to Alshon. It hit, Jeff, it hit Matthews. Anyway, he like, and, and it's very funny because he makes that play, and people go bananas. And then he with his back up against the goal line, makes an incredible elusive move in the pocket, gets outside, puts a relatively good ball on Jordan Matthews with Quentin Meeks in coverage. Quentin Meeks, who played amazing. He was awesome. uh, (laughs) Nobody, nobody, nobody in the league has matched up Zach Ertz this year the way the undrafted corner out of Stanford did. Meeks had the best game against Ertz I have seen all season. I had a a date. Are we about to go draft on draft here? Yeah, I had a day two grade on Meeks. Day two. I'm, pr- I'm pretty confident he may have been right around my top 50. I have. I don't know. A lot of people I'm were asking. pulling up the big board. Why he wasn't drafted. Let's see here. We're oh, mid-second, 45th overall. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah. Let's see here. I had him and Isaiah Oliver right next to each other. Give me smart corners. Oh, dude, he's super smart. Like, he popped for me when I when we were watching um uh, Justin, Justin, Justin Reed. Reed. The safety. Which is funny because it was the opposite for me. I was watching Meeks and I was like, who's this number eight who won't stop <laughs> making plays? But anyway, I'll, I'll finish my point. I'll finish my point and then you can tell me Quentin Meeks. Okay, so that throw to Zach Ertz, nearly picked. Or that that throw to Jordan Matthews, Quentin Meeks in coverage, nearly picked. Uh, backed up in the in deep in their own territory. Carson Wentz got flamed. Like Carson can't, like he's pressing. Why is he making these decisions? You know, he, he's trying too hard. That was a much better decision and higher percentage throw then third and 14, but it works and everybody's fine with it. You know what I mean? So we have to be very careful. Like, both of those are, in, are are very aggressive. One of them, you're being tackled, is a bit more risky than the other one where you are just got a guy in front of you and he's coming to hit you. But at least you're, you know, you're not currently in the grasp throwing the football. So Carson does some things that I can't abide by. Uh, he's too, he definitely is too uh, risky. And the fact that he doesn't have more interceptions is literally shocking. Like, he is, <laughs> he's either due for a regression or he will forever his greatest strength will ever for, will forever be being a nutcase with the football and just not turning it over somehow. Interception but, luck, yeah, uh, that's yeah, that's interesting. By the way, what, where, where did you have Meeks again? Forty five mid second. Oh, I had him forty seventh. Get at this boy. How how are we both so high on Meeks and the NFL is just like meh, and then he comes out and and he's and he's covering Zach Ertz like that, one of the best route ranked tight ends in the league. Anyway, it's a great game. Great game. Uh, Carson's playing so well. But you can see, and it was it was like a late uh, drive where the Eagles ended up kicking a field goal. Uh, they got deep into Jacksonville territory. He is so frustrated with the amount of pressure that he gets immediately. He is you can just tell like he like Carson is is a you know Carson was brought up in the John D. Filippo school. D. Filippo had had what they called a body language penalty, Mike, where if you showed bo- bad body language after a play in training camp, you got like penalized. Like you had to do like push ups or you had to like pay a fine or something, right? Wow. Filippo thought it was very important for the quarterback to always have positive body language to communicate to his team that they were still alive and that everything was going to be okay if they got to the next play. And you can see Carson just gets so pissed. He's so done with the amount of pressure that he's getting. And it's so frustrating because Matt Pryor's not active uh, and was and is like kind of a guard-tackle hybrid because the idea was that Sayomalo could kick out to tackle if we needed him to. Right. And he, he can't. He, he can't. can't play tackle, Mike. No. He, he can't. Like, maybe he can if he knows he's going to, and he'll spend a week on his pass sets, and he'll be better prepared for it. But when he went from guard to tackle, he could not gain depth in his pass set. Yep. Big V, 
gains depth in his pass set, but still can't deal with speed on the outside because he lunges. So Carson, you know, I was calling for more rollouts with Carson because Carson can't stay deep in the pocket. He immediately has to climb up when he's got Vitae on one side and Sam on the other. Yep. So you've got to get him outside of the pocket. Mm-hmm. The only way you can let him have depth in his pass sets and you can be able to see what he's looking at. And he's not right up against his center and his guards. And the other reason it's frustrating is because they should have drafted a tackle earlier than the fifth round with Matt Pryor, which I just we, we, we said for the entire draft cycle. We've been saying for the last two years, actually. Uh, ben, I know, I know there was a play that you looked at that a lot of people were criticizing Wentz for, but you went and looked at the thought process that Wentz had yeah. gone through that led him to that interception in the red zone that was picked off by Jalen Ramsey. People saw that Wendell Smallwood was uncovering on the wheel there and was fairly open and he could have made that throw. Do you want to dig into why that play happened the way it did and the thought process behind it? Double post wheel, Mike, double post wheel. Let me tell you why. Right. Double post is awesome in the red zone. You throw a wheel in, I'm in. Right. So like post wheel is awesome in the red zone and double post is awesome in the red zone. And (laughs) technically not Philadelphia, Oakland in 2016 with Bill Musgrave was like, yo, what if we just did both of them at the same time? <laughs> uh, you can find this clip on my timeline, and I didn't get to talk about how excited I was about Double Post Wheel, because I have to fit it in 2 minutes and 20 seconds, and it took me like 6 tries, because I kept on talking too much in the beginning. So, <laughs> you're taking a deep half of the field, and you're putting 3 deep routes there, right? And a, and in the red zone, obviously, the deep area of the field is limited. The end line is there, and it's going to stop it. But... When your quarterback can read a half field, one to two to three, and he can read that space relatively quickly, he can be in line to make the throw at any time because his body is already planed in that direction. He's got his throwing hallway set up. Against cover two, you're going to have the interior route. And against cover three, you're either going to have the outside post, you're going to have the wheel, depending on what the cover three corner does. So, really cool. Philadelphia runs the real route, wheel route with Wendell Smallwood out the backfield. And they've got Josh Perkins running the inside post and Nelson Aguilar running the outside post. At the snap, it's looking like uh, two deep safety, cover two. So we're looking for the inside post. But Philadelphia's got jet motion coming across the formation to the play side. So what does that do? It takes that deep safety and it pulls him up, right? So jet motion coming from Carson Wentz's white, Carson Wentz's right to his left, which means the safety to his left has to get dragged down into the box in case it's a jet sweep sort of a look. So now Carson gives the little play action fake to the jet sweep, the jet motion, and now he's looking at the the far safeties coming into the middle of the field and the corner, the cover three corner is staying where he is because of the threat to Nelson Aguilar. Everything up until this point went exactly as it was supposed to on the chalkboard. Josh Perkins is going to have a mile and a half worth of space yep. to throw this football. Mm-hmm. Jalen Ramsey is the deep corner on the other side. The the Really what you had was a cover four quarters situation from the, the defense for the Jaguars. Jalen Ramsey is all on the other side of the field. You're not even really worried about him. The offensive play designer mentions him like when they're going through the end of the play. Like, and we have to make sure that this corner doesn't come overlap, but really we should be fine. You know what I mean? Like that should rarely happen. Yeah, if he does, it'll be late. You'll see it. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's like a throwaway mention. You know what I mean? Like this yeah. doesn't happen. Remember, Jalen Ramsey, remember, people wanted him to be a safety out of college. This is yeah. a athletic, instinctive, rangy, ball hawking player. So Rams is already starting to sneak. But there's still tons of room for Carson to get this ball to Josh Perkins. Isaac Samalo playing left guard. Uh-huh. Uh, surrenders quick pressure to Clayus Campbell. Goes back to the point. Pressure disrupts the pocket, solves I think problems that's, uh, in the secondary. I think, uh, who's that? Or is Malik Jackson. Yep. Malik Jackson? Mm-hmm. Malik Jackson. Carson's forced to step up. 
and reset his throwing hallway because he got like affected. His body got chucked a little bit. So he goes and he knows he's getting late. He's late to this throw. He knows he should have already released. He knows he already wanted to. So he tries to put this thing with all arm like 30 yards down the field, right? He's damn near off of his feet. He's When the ball comes out of his hand, he's like off his feet. His <laughs> hips, like you want your hips to be in a line facing your target, right? Like yeah. your back hip and behind your front hip to the target. Carson's Wentz what? hips are literally facing the target. He is at 90 <laughs> degrees to where he should be. Like, like there's just no power going to come from the rotation of his hips at all. And he's like half jumping. And so he tries to all arm this thing and it sails on him. And it, it flutters a little bit. Like, by the time the ball is released, you'd like for the ball to be pretty much already there. This ball is out late. Carson could have, and a more risk-averse quarterback probably would have said, I'm late to this. Let me go to my second read, which is the the outside post from Aguilar, or my third read, which is Wendell Smallwood, which did open up. And Wendell obviously was, like, waving his arms, like, guy, I'm open. He had already made the decision to throw that ball to Perkins right. before Smallwood had opened up, right? Right, which... Smallwood is the third read because it takes longer for the wheel to open up because Smallwood's got to get out of the backfield all the way to the boundary and then come upfield. So he's designed to be the later read. That's very important. It's not like Carson had a choice between either one. If Perkins is open, the ball should come to Perkins. Now, like I said, once Carson realizes that he's late to that ball because of the pressure, a more risk-averse and probably more veteran quarterback would have reset and looked for Smallwood. Carson did not. Carson tried to force the ball in there, still honestly had a window, but Jalen Ramsey's also making a fantastic play, overlapping coverages, starting, you know, all the way to the right and basically playing middle of the field safety, just a stellar play. You know, so this could have even been completed against a worse corner on the other side. But Ramsey's just a really good corner. So we've had two situations now where Carson hasn't hit Wendell Smallwood in the red zone and he's forced a middle of the field throw that could have been picked. This is your quarterback. Like, 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 <laughs> uh, like you know, Carson's like, you know, people say like, oh, Carson's regressing. He's not. Carson's always done this because uh, he's bananas and he's he's super aggressive it hasn't gone well for him there have been other times where he'll feed this ball in there and it's an incredible catch by Zach Ertz up you know above the rim double toe tapping on the end zone and we all think Carson's amazing so just be careful of your of your results-based analysis it's important to understand why Carson went to that ball second half I thought he played great I thought he had a tough first like, half and showed the mental and competitive toughness to come back and have a great second half because he was definitely struggling that first half the final point is this Carson Wentz had a great relationship with Filippo. DeFilippo likely would have tried to temper down some of this aggressiveness. We have to see if Press Taylor is able to do it. You right. know what I mean? Like we have to see how Carson calibrates his game now that he's had the same mistake a couple of times and what the new coaching staff will be able to offer him in that regard. I have a bet to make with you. Let's make a bet. Double post wheel, right? They missed it for a touchdown. In what week do they hit double post wheel for a touchdown? In what week do they hit double post wheel for a touchdown to Smallwood? We'll, we'll make it two parts. Oh, too small. Okay, well, I don't think. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, okay, was... how about this? Let's put the uh, let's put the over under at at. I mean, there's eight games left. Put the over under at four and a half. Do they throw a touchdown to that double post wheel under four and a half games or over four and a half games from now? I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the exact week they throw it. Yeah, that's that's what I'm looking for. Give it to me. No, yeah, let's I'm not gonna, I'm gonna be a coward to go game. over under. Yeah. Okay. I like it. I like it. They're gonna. I don't know what week this is, but they're gonna throw it against the Saints. I just saw the Saints pop up. Okay. Saints have a very instinctive safety in Marcus Williams playing the deep third, and the Saints have been gashed by deep plays all year long because their secondary flies around like crazy. Also, uh, Marcus Davenport is uh, going to be out with the toe injury, likely uh, for that yeah. game. Davenport's likely sidelined for about a month, uh, which means they're not gonna have that much pressure. Which means Carson's gonna have time to get too small. What if he wants it? Double post wheel against the Saints.
Calling it. The Washington Redskins have had communication issues on their back end, especially passing off routes and getting a lot of We got to see what HaHa does for them, man. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the perception around HaHa is different nationally than it is than it was in Green Bay. Who was it? Who, who was it who said that yesterday? That was Ben Fennel, so, and I one thousand percent agree yeah. with him. I like well, HaHa. I mean, but he's super inconsistent. Right. So that was my thing is I was like, oh, Green Bay media must think Kaha's good. And no. then I realized that the, the the disparity was a lot of like national NFL network guys think Kaha's good. And I don't I just I don't I just see Ha miss like three tackles a game and I'm like, all right, get him out of there. I mean, that's been the story for him since he was a rookie. And you see the three interceptions and you go, ooh, sexy. You got a playmaker. Well, you know, you got to look at the other side of that coin, too. So I'm going to go with the Washington yep. Redskins. They've had issues passing off routes, communication issues pre-snap. You're throwing that that's motion. such That's so scummy because the Eagles play the Redskins twice. The Eagles only play the Saints once. Oh, no. And I'm, I'll, I'll pick this specific week. I think it's December 3rd. Yeah, you're still, if they still do it the other week, you're going to be like, look what I said. Redskins, <laughs> I called it. You're 100% hedging and you know it. I have I have good reasoning behind it, and therefore I can hedge Ben. Obviously, we wanted to talk about more, but we ended up yelling at each other about Nelson Aguilar for about 15 minutes on the front of the show uh, and had some pretty in-depth What more did we want to talk about? I feel like this was everything, man. We went crazy. Uh, you know, I wanted to talk about Josh, uh, Josh Adams, you know, making some nice cuts and overperforming what I think he is as a running back, and I thought they should have stuck with him a little bit more as the hot hand, as in any running back rotation. Doesn't make him uh, a starter, a permanent starter, but I do believe that, you know, you get a hot hand and you stick with him. I thought he made some nice plays, but he does have his limitations, especially in the past game, and he's a run key and all that stuff. Uh, that's one of the things I wanted to touch on. Obviously, we talked, we touched on the tackle depth as well. That's going to be an issue moving forward, depending on how much Lane Johnson or how long Lane Johnson is out. But yeah, no, I, I think we, I think we covered it. Ben, let the gentle listeners know what we have on tap for the rest of the week. Screw you. Um, <laughs> especially because it's a bye week. There's literally no possible way I could know what's going to happen. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Kissed and Solak show here on BGN Radio. We do appreciate you dropping by. Uh, like I said, it is a bye week. So looking at the schedule coming up, uh, it will likely be... I mean, I can't understand what you sent here. Sunday, Kissed and Solak, and Solak recap no, that's the, Monday. No, 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 no. That, no that's, the regular, that's the regular week. Uh, schedule. Ben, Dang it. I thought I you, had you. Are you going to record with me and John Ledyard uh, on Friday? I don't know. I might have plans. Because we'll have BGN Radio coming up next. That'll be uh, Friday morning. And then we're going to have some draft talk. We're going to have John Ledyard from the Draft Network stop in and talk some draft. And I know him being your coworker and a, and a mutual friend, I wanted to know if you wanted in on that conversation or if you secretly yeah, hate John. On. That's okay, too. I won't tell him. No, you know I'll come on. Don't be ridiculous. Okay. So but anyway, uh, yeah, so that's Ledger coming in on Friday. BGN Radio is going to also be on Friday. I didn't really listen to the dates. Uh, leave reviews! Rate us. Tell us we're really good at this. It makes us feel good. And thank you for listening. And I hope this was a good episode. I had a blast. That was a really fun episode. I know it's a long one. Um, but this was a good time. And I think the Eagles are a good team. And I'm excited about Golden Tate. We all we got. We all we need. Fly, Eagles, fly. Hello, you're listening to Simone de Rochefort, one of the hosts of The Polygon Show. It's a show all about the video games that you'll never have time to play, brought to you by four friends who are just as passionate about food, soft drinks, and TV shows as we are about video games. Every Friday, we bring you a new hour of personal stories. 
like how we found the best way to play Yakuza 0, or even what happens when you play so much Zelda that you hurt your hands and can't play games anymore. Above all, we just have a really good time talking about the games that we love. Check out the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. You can also find us at Polygon Show on Twitter and send a tweet to say hi. Thanks for listening.